Marissa Lee here, and I'm so excited to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. In these episodes, our brilliant lineup of guests will include healthcare practitioners, voice educators, and other professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to empower you to live your best life. Whether you're a member of the voice community or beyond, your voice is your unique gift. It's time now to share your gift with others, develop a positive mindset and become the best and most authentic version of yourself to create greater impact. Ultimately, you can take charge. It's time for you to live your best life. It's time now for A Voice and Beyond. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Our guest this week is author, teacher and speaker Meredith Colby, who is the creator of NeuroVocal, which is an approach to teaching singing for popular music styles based on brain science. In this episode, Meredith speaks candidly about her professional career, the demands of the CCM industry for singers, the lack of formal training for the styles she was performing, and the vocal issues she encountered as a classically trained singer working in a touring rock band. Meredith firmly believes that the many years of classical training she had received did not give her the tools she needed to sustain the styles she was performing and ultimately led to her vocal burnout. These experiences inspired her to research and write her book, Money Notes, in which she introduces NeuroVocal, a fast, effective training approach that encourages healthy singing habits for microphone singers and is based on neuroscience. NeuroVocal teaches students to steer changes in their brains and to be guided by these changes as they occur. Meredith breaks down her approach which has been proven to achieve remarkably fast results and puts the student in the driver's seat. Not only that, but it also equips the singer with tools for a healthy voice that will last for a lifetime. There is so much to unpack in this episode, and I know you are going to love all the information Meredith has to share with us. So without further ado, Let's go to today's episode. Welcome to A Voice and Beyond, Meredith Colby. It is such a pleasure having you here. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me, Marissa. I'm really looking forward to being here. I am well. I am happy. It's a beautiful day in Chicago. (laughs) And you know what? I love Chicago. I had Laurie Sonnenberg on the show last week. And yes, and she's from Chicago also. It must be Chicago month perhaps, but it is my one of my favorite cities to visit in the US and I can't wait to go back there. And now I have two friends to hang out with. Yes, you do. Yes. And we can we can probably get up to a lot of trouble in Chicago. 
I imagine we could. <laughs> and see some good theater and eat some good restaurants. It's a great restaurant city, isn't it? Yes, I had beautiful food there. And I also saw Hamilton in Chicago. Oh, did you? Yes, it was so good. Now, yeah. it's about you, Meredith. We're, it's, we're all about you today. It's all about me. <laughs> I know, don't you love that? So you are a vocal coach, a voice expert, an author and creator of the neurovocal method. But let's start with young Meredith. When did you start singing and was that something that was encouraged in your family? Yes, it was encouraged in my family. My mother played piano and I would sit next to her on the piano bench and she taught me old standards. Right. So she would play and we would sing together. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so cool. And was that the music that you were growing up with? Was that sort of jazz standards? Yes. Uh, the records we had were folk, mostly folk music. Okay. And, and then the jazz, of course, Ella Fitzgerald. We wore that one out. And then we sang at the piano together. And that was fairly frequently. Yeah. And then, of course, I did probably what every singer does in school or most singers. I was in all the choirs and auditioned for all the solos. My earliest memory of doing a solo, I think I was 10 years old mm -hmm. and I sang Thoroughly Modern Millie. Oh. And I remember there was a lady in the front row and she was an older lady and she was laughing. And I, being 10 years old and taking myself very seriously, imagined that she was laughing at me. And now, of course, I realize I was 10. I was probably really cute. Oh, I'm sure. Right? Because it was thoroughly modern Millie. That lady was probably alive in the 20s, and she probably thought it was hilarious to hear a 10-year-old sing thoroughly modern Millie. <laughs> probably, but definitely very, very cute. So they were your inspirations. And when did you become, uh, when did you start your formal singing training? When I was 14. Mm-hmm. And was that in classical? Yes. Okay. It was. I, you know, my, my parents had not had formal training. My mother had piano lessons when she was a kid and a teenager, uh, but none, she hadn't had any singing lessons, although she was a singer. And my father was a minister, and so he sang, of course, you have to sing when you're the minister. And uh, I, they did not know that there was a difference. And even if they had, they would not have been able to get me any training in contemporary styles obviously, at that mm -hmm. time. So it was, yes, they just got me voice lessons and voice lessons, by definition, meant yes. classical lessons. So yes, I had classical lessons from 14 years old all the way through high school. And then uh, I had a year off while I was traveling. And then I did some performing at that time. And then I went back to college and had five more years of classical lessons. Wow. And then I went on the road with a rock band and trashed my voice. Okay, Yay. so let's just back, back, back a bit here. Reel that back in. Yeah, let's, let's just reel it, reel it, reel it. No. So when you were having these classical lessons, did it feel strange to you? I mean, were you singing classical music outside of those lessons? Well, no. Did, did you? I had, no, I had no experience with classical music at all. I, I, I mean... Church, you know, church choir music, and mm -hmm. I guess the choir, the high school choir, you know, they give you some classical pieces, of course, 
Uh, but but it wasn't anything I listened to. I didn't have an ear for what it was for the the nugget of it, for the heart of it. You know. Yes. I didn't. I didn't understand what it was, and and none of my teachers asked me to listen to it. You okay. Know? They just taught me the songs. And but when you were at home in your bedroom in your own space, were you singing those songs, or were you still going back and singing those the standards? I was singing standards. I was singing along with Natalie Cole mm-hmm. and Denise Williams. Yes, <laughs> who I love both. Yes, and the Cars and Alan Parsons Project. <laughs> and but how did your voice fit when you having classical training and then singing those standards? Could you not hear that there was something going on that the training was not matching? To me, it would be like having baseball lessons and then going to play tennis. You're still hitting the ball. You still have a racket in your hand, but it's a different game. Did you have that feeling going on or were you none the wiser? What I remember, Marissa, is being feeling very frustrated that I couldn't sing loudly. Oh. Because this was, this was during the time in, in the most, I think probably, I don't know, a, a good number, good percentage, if not most, of classical teachers believed that to sing in chest register would be intrinsically bad for a, a singer, a female singer, mm-hmm. estrogen influenced voice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so they would, everything I sang was in head register. And so, of course, you know, if you don't have any familiarity with your chest register, as soon as you're at A4, you start to get very, very, very quiet. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and of course, everything Natalie Cole sang where I was singing along with her was in that range. So I, I remember, I just remember feeling frustrated because I didn't understand what was happening. People don't when they're just starting. Or So I just remember feeling frustrated for years and years and years about not being able to sing loudly. Yes. And then you started your performance career. Do you remember your first gig? Your first paid job. Oh, my first paid job? Yes, your first paid job. I do, actually. It was with, and I was surprised I got paid. It was with my friend, Tom, who we were, we were strumming guitar in a pub together and (laughs) yeah, and being ignored and stuck in the corner. And, (laughs) and I think we got paid 20 quid and I was very surprised. I think I got paid $20 (laughs) for my first job. And I was thinking about that this morning. That's what inspired the question. My first gig, I was 15 years old, just turned 15. It was my very first band. And my very first song was the the start of a floor show. It was in the days that we used to do floor shows, which essentially was a show on the floor, walking around to all through all the tables and being like the headline singer and singing Killing Me Softly, which had the Roberta Flack version, had that first part that was ad lib and it was, you know, it was no accompaniment. And that was my very first song in my very first paid gig on the floor walking around tables. And I thought, really, how scary that must have been but I don't remember it being scary. I think I was just such a diva that I, didn't <laughs> I was like, "Oh, look at me go!" 
know. I'm so amazing at, at the ripe old age of 15. Because what could go wrong when you're 15? Yeah, singing, yeah. killing me softly. Uh, yeah, and That's a showstopper for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I was 18. I was 18. Yeah. So when you were performing during your performance career, what kind of music were you mainly performing? Oh, mainly, I was two people during my performance career. Overwhelmingly, mm-hmm. 90%, 85%, I was freelance singer, jukebox with legs, whatever you want, that's what I'm singing. Mm-hmm. And the other 15%, I was Meredith. And those were jazz standard gigs. Because, okay. Yeah. And did you not perform any any classical music at all? Did you have a classical career? No, no, no. Okay. I never wanted that. I had no eyes for classical ever, not mm-hmm. for one minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and- actually, now, okay, I have to take that back. Okay. When I got out of college, when I was graduated from the studio music and jazz program at the University of Miami, I had had zero training in contemporary styles. I had taught myself some things from Cindy Lauper and Patti LaBelle specifically. Yes. Okay. <laughs> they were Very my teachers. Different. They were my teachers. And um, yeah, so I was graduated. I, I auditioned for some things and was not selected for anything. And then I auditioned for the Greater Miami Opera Guild and I was selected to be in their chorus for that season. So I was a, yes, I, that was my eight months of being a paid classical singer. Okay. Out of like probably how many years of performing you had eight months. <laughs> and yet, and yet you had years and years of classical. Yeah. It's the roles are very reversed here and the training's very reversed. I want to know what's wrong with that picture. <laughs> yes, you and Some, me both, Marissa. Mm. So then I know that you had a very poor experience when you were singing in a road band. Yes. So talk so that to was us. how I find that's how I finally got to be a rock singer, you know, be the pop singer I wanted to be. But again, I hadn't had any training. I had figured out certain things for myself and so I, in those days, in the olden days, before the internet, mm-hmm. you were able to get jobs with a cassette tape yes, <laughs> and a photograph, yes. both of which I had. So I, I was hired by a road band that was touring the Western United States. Mm-hmm. And I did that for nine, just about nine months, almost to the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost to the day I got in my car and drove home because I had zero voice left. I had no voice at all because the gigs, I mean, it was, it was either five or six nights a week and it was either three or four hours a night, night after night after night mm-hmm. in, yes. in amplified situations. You know, you know what it's like. The, the bass yes. amp is on your right side and the guitar amps on your left side and the kick drums in your 18 inches from your mm-hmm. butt and you and the monitors are on the floor by your feet but the sound is going up over your shoulders you can't really hear very well yes and so yeah and so even if i you know in retrospect i wonder even if i had had some training would i have survived to that any better i don't know mhm now that's really interesting because 
your story sounds very familiar to me and very similar to my own experience when I was touring in a rock band and an all-male band except for me as the chick singer and no Mm -hmm. one listened to me. I had no voice in that band literally when I spoke up and complained that I couldn't hear myself, nobody listened. I had to lug the equipment alongside the guys when Mm -hmm. we didn't have the money to pay for roadies. Sound check would be spent predominantly on the drum on, the, on you know every every part of the drum kit was mic'd up i'd get test one two three great yes and then, yes. yes and then when you had an audience and you had the ambience that would all change again of course and, but no allowances were made for that but the lifestyle on the road was really difficult and that's where I get really cranky and I talked about this <laughs> with Laurie Sonnenberg, you know, the shaming that we have in our singing voice community for people who sing CCM styles, predominantly rock, that there is a stigma attached to the, the styles themselves being detrimental to vocal health. But if people knew the lifestyle that you live on the road, especially as a woman, it is not going to help your cause in terms of vocal health. And I totally empathize with you. I totally get it. And I'm, I'm glad that you talked about that. So with your voice, you had no voice. What were the warning signs leading up to that? Or did you have any or did your voice just cut out? No, I definitely had warning signs, which I chose to ignore. <laughs> As we all do. For a long time. Uh, you know, the big one was I didn't have a voice until four in the afternoon. And then mm. I could sort of sing, you know. But in the morning, nothing. Wow. Yeah. And did that become that it was taking you longer and longer to recover from the gig from the night before? I think so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't. Remember specifically because I did not keep any sort of a journal about it, and it was a long time ago. And also, I'm I tend to be sort of a you know, sort of a Protestant stiff upper lip, stoic kind of person. Like, if it's just keep going, and also, I think what you're talking about in terms of being the only woman in the band, which is true for most female singers, you know, mm-hmm. not so much really young people now, but it certainly sort of any of us who are north of 30, we were typically the only female in the band. And and so we were loath to complain or or do anything that we considered whining or, or bitching, right? So yes. yes, we just suck it up. And Absolutely. But also too with the industry, if you don't work, you don't get paid. And then there's that. And yeah. then, well, that was part of it. I remember I I had to sing for two weeks while they were waiting for my replacement I because had he had gigs yeah. booked for a year. Yes. Well, I had to sing for a further three months because I was <gasps> I was bullied into continuing to perform. Oh my goodness! Yes, they told me that if I didn't honor the gigs that we already had, that. I would never work again. They would see to it. My management oh. said they would see to it that I would never work again. Oh. So I had to continue singing. And by the end of it, I was a hot mess. I mean, not just vocally, but emotionally, physically, yeah. Yeah. psychologically, 
the trauma was in, yes. was incredible. But anyway, this is about you. Trauma. <laughs> no, but it it's that is also about me, and that's that is what you just described, Marissa, is literally the reason that I put myself out there. Because mm-hmm. I will be honest, I am very uncomfortable putting myself out there. Mm-hmm. I would rather not be in any sort of the public eye. <laughs> I would rather just sort of quietly be doing what I've been doing for the last 30 years, just working with pop singers and helping them. But it just seemed like I had something that would help that situation that we just described that nobody else seemed to be doing. And I felt compelled to share it. And so that so I do. And it's because of that, because I don't want to see another 14 year old girl put in classical lessons with a teacher who thinks that pop is bad, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or who's not trained to teach pop mm-hmm. and, and just begin this journey that's going to end up or could not going to, but has the potential to end up just shaping this person's life and self-image and, and inviting trauma in their young adult life. I, I, you can tell I get a little wound up that's, about that. That's great, but we need to speak up. And this is the perfect place because there's no judgment here. And I've learned to be courageous in the past 12 months with this podcast. And I've spoken about things I've never spoken about. And it takes courage to do that. But it's so liberating and it's empowering other people, Meredith. So absolutely get worked up because we need to shout (laughs) this from the rooftops. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of my, as I've, as I've had to really explore my own values around this so that I can stay anchored when, when the wind blows, you know, is I, I want to share confidence. I want people to feel confident. I want people who have come from a classical background, but who teach. And let's face it, if you are somebody who teaches voice and you have been teaching voice for more than five years, you're someone who's going to keep teaching voice because you have found something in that that serves your soul. Mm-hmm. And it and it is. It's very. Uh, it's it's a very unique line of work, and the kind of people that do it are quite extraordinary in my exp- in my experience. Yeah. And so I want that person to feel confident as as she goes in to empower another young musician or another. Well, doesn't have to be young. Another musician. Mm-hmm. And then I also want those people to leave her studio feeling confident because art is scary. Art is about taking chances. We are performance artists. Singing is about art. So if we don't feel confident, we won't explore our medium. We will just stay safe and make the, what I used to call the singing like sound. You know, we will, that's where we will stay. Then why do we have it? Why do we have the art? Why are we spending all this time and energy and money and love and passion on pursuing excellence or even competence in this particular art form if we are not going to then have the confidence to explore the art form yes because we're afraid of doing something wrong you yes. know so I, I so anyway uh, i have a very strong value in the the need for confidence in art and so what i hope in sharing what i do share is that i am sharing that. It sounds like that is going to be your legacy. <laughs> I hope so. 
Yes, I hope and, so. and I want well said to too. You articulated that so beautifully and, and you're so right in what you're saying and I wish everyone had that attitude because I do believe, and this is unfortunate, that there are a lot of teachers though that do teach for the sake of money and they don't have empathy for the sounds that they're listening to and they do it because they have to to put food on the table. There are teachers that don't like the sounds that their students are creating in the voice studio and they don't truly understand how they're made but continue to take the money and don't receive the proper training that they need to to have the understanding they require to teach those styles in a sustainable manner. And you are talking about popular styles specifically, I'm guessing. Yes, yes. And specifically pop, rock, anything, well, not all CCM styles, but I would say predominantly pop and rock. And dare I use that dirty four-letter word, belt. (laughs) Dare I use that dirty four-letter word. Wow. When, When I first went to study formally, it was in my late 40s. I was accepted as a postgraduate student. I didn't have a bachelor's and I was studying vocal pedagogy, and I was in a room full of classical students, and I dare not. I didn't know belt was a, was a thing. Like I just, I just belted, and I just you thought just that's how you sang. Yeah. And, I, and I, had, sure. I could belt really high, and my voice was really healthy and, you know, n- never had drama with my voice except for that time in the rock band. But dare I tell people that I belted? Honestly, <laughs> you what? Yeah, you belt. Oh! And I go. Don't we all in this? <laughs> this is what we do in in our when you sing those styles. But anyway, we've. I'm going to rein this back in here now. <laughs> so I want to know. Okay, rein her well, in. Okay, rein her in because I want to know how did you hear your voice. What oh, did you yeah. Do? Oh, yeah. That was a very sad year. So I had, I got a day job. Although in my day job, I learned computers. Mm. So that was good because computers were not that old at that point. So no. it wasn't a normal thing to be fluent at them. So that was my day job. And then I took piano lessons and I saw a lar- laryngologist and a Reiki uh, practitioner. Oh, love it. And yes, what I remember about that, Marissa, oh, this is so funny. You're dredging up all these memories for me. I remember that part of my therapy from the laryn- laryngologist was that he, I had to not speak for six weeks. He said, if you want to avoid surgery, and I don't want you to have surgery, he goes, you have to just not speak for six weeks. So I did not speak for six weeks. And it was one of the most interesting times of my life. The way people respond to you when you do not verbalize in their direction is extraordinary. I remember my father sitting, speaking to my sister. I'm sitting, you know, three feet away from Mm. each of them. And my father telling my sister to tell me something (laughs) as though I couldn't. People would assume that when I wrote something on a piece of paper that I was also uh, unable to hear. That and even my father weirdest. fell into that. But did he think so- that that you discriminated, that you couldn't hear a dad a dad voice, but you could hear a sister voice? 
I have no idea. <laughs> I just remember sitting there thinking, well, that's odd. But that is so odd. It was so interesting. I, I sometimes think I would like to do that again and actually journal and see what happens. But yeah, that was so that was a year of, of healing. And then uh, I moved to Chicago because I had friends from college in Chicago. And at the University of, Mi- of Miami, basically, we, we just talked about going to New York, Chicago or L.A. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like L.A. or New York would be good fits for me. So I moved to Chicago and um, sort of got going here as a freelancer. And that's where I found my first singer, uh, teacher of popular styles. And so that was that was when I first first really started to feel like I was singing instead of just making the singing like noise. Yes. (laughs) And you were allowed to actually be louder. Well, yes. I mean, by that time, I had figured out my own way to access my you know, chess register, phonation. I, I, I had figured a lot of it out. But but yeah, he taught me, he was teaching me how to mix and giving me the space to play around with styles. And yeah, it was just good. It was very good. And now you brought up Cindy Lauper and Patti LaBelle and that you had some, <laughs> your training was through those two singers. What did you learn from them? That is so interesting that you mentioned those two names and they're very different singers. It's, those are my, I'm sure there were more, but those are my strong memories. The, I have a strong memory of being in my car and, and listening to Girls Just Want to Have Fun mm-hmm. and copying her. And that was the first time I remember accessing my chess register. Wow. So through mimicking. Mm. Yeah. That's how and I then, first learned to sing, basically, yeah. in pop and rock styles was mimicking. I, well, we all do, don't we? I mean, mm-hmm. singers are mimics. And if I hadn't been shuttled off into lessons, I probably would have done just as you did. Uh, but and then Patty LaBelle, my memory of her is sitting in the, the college cafeteria and there were t- TVs on and no sound. So it was just watching this show. And Patty LaBelle came on and I, of course, was like, oh, there she is. And I was watching her sing and watching her. Oh, okay. What she was her doing mouth was just hanging open yes. the whole time. Yes, and I went, ooh. <laughs> right. And then I spent the next. That was my senior year, and then I spent basically that whole year in the practice rooms, practicing in the mirror with my mouth open like that. It wasn't anything anyone was teaching me. I mm-hmm. just figured if Patty Labelle did it, it was worth figuring out, and that opened up all kinds of uh, new things I could do with my voice. And I remember thinking. This should not ha- be a secret. <laughs> what was the main thing, though? You said it opened up a whole bunch of things. Can you recollect what was the biggest aha that you had from watching that? Being loud. Okay. Being able mm-hmm. to sing loudly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was, I was head voice girl. I remember one of my companies in, in the jazz program turning to me and saying, can't you sing any louder? I was so ashamed. Because the answer was, no, I cannot. I do not know how. Wow. Things that we go through, I mean, us singers, we're pretty messed up at the best of times. We're so in our heads. (laughs) We're our worst enemies most of the time, just criticizing everything that comes out of our mouths. So to have even more pressure on you, that would have been so traumatic. How did you transition into teaching then? Was it something you fell into by accident, like most of us? 
No, I was very intentional about it. I was an evangelist. I, after about two years of studying and, and so when I'm, as I'm studying, but I'm, I'm not just taking lessons. I'm gigging every weekend. So I'm, I'm gigging between one and four, three hour jobs every weekend. Some of them with bands I already knew, some of them where I'm just walking into the performance and shaking hands and meeting the band and then performing for three hours. So yes. the life of a freelancer, right? Yes, I've done, done all that. I did yeah. it for years. Yes. Yeah. So, well, because it pays, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. right. So I'm taking lessons and I'm singing and I'm, so I'm very aware of the changes that are happening in my ability level. And I started to get very excited at about two years. I said to my teacher, I want to start teaching too. And he said, great. First, do no harm, Meredith. (laughs) Why don't you take a year of graduate level, graduate level vocal pedagogy with the guy in Chicago? He was the guy that everybody took pedagogy with, right? So I went and signed up and kept taking my lessons with my teacher and took the pedagogy class. And then when I started teaching at the end of that, this kind of makes me choke up to think about it. I had a teacher and I had a coach and they were both studio, Chicago studio singers. And I asked them if they would observe and give me feedback. And they, both of them sat in on some of my lessons and then sat and talked to me afterwards about how I could be better. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just so much generosity and wouldn't take money for it. That is incredible. Isn't that incredible? Yes. So and then they, when I worked at the center, teachers of service too. They weren't just singing teachers, but but they had they were serving the community as well. Yes, yes. They were just such beloved people in the community, in the music community here. So then when I uh, a few years later, when I was uh, working at the Center for Voice, that was part of the culture there. Is if your if your student canceled, you would just walk next door and sit in on somebody else's lesson. And so we got to watch each other teach and there was a lot of, you know, good natured thievery going on and mm-hmm. discoveries and mm-hmm. it was a great environment. That's the best way to learn. Mm. And we have to be bow birds. That's what we call them. Those birds that go around and, and grab a little bit of everything to build their nests. You know, yeah. they, they just grab every, every bit of stuff that they can and then put it together. And the next thing they have a beautiful nest. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And then you wrote a book, Money Notes, where you introduce and you have that behind you for our YouTubers. Oh, yes. (laughs) You have, have, yeah, good on you. (laughs) And where you introduce (laughs) your neurovocal method. So tell us about how the book and the method, like what came first and what is it all about? Okay. I, I love to talk about this, but I do have to tell you, that recently, and not least encouraged by your questions to me of, of a month ago, I'm just calling it neurovocal. I can't with the method thing. Because when I said, when I call it neurovocal method, see, I'm not an academic, right? I don't hang out with academics, although people, some people in my family are that. But, I, you know, I don't work at a college. So mm-hmm. I had no idea what um, a I don't method know. The, the just all the baggage that came with the word method. I was using the dictionary term, not the music no, department term. So no. anyway, so I don't want that to keep people from me. So I've just dropped it. And I'm just calling it neurovocal for popular styles. The end. 
Wow. <laughs> so was that after our conversation? It was. Well, but you were sort of the straw for me that broke the camel's back. Yes, because people yeah, people think of a method as something that in week one, we all do this no matter what your issue is as a student, you come in and we all have to follow the same training, whether it's something right. that needs fixing or not. Is usually there, So there's that piece and then there's also the guru piece. So those two pieces together, we're just yes. like, so neither of those are me. So if that's the connotation people have with that word, got to go. Yeah. It's got to go. So yeah. off it went. Well, you so could call it, it neurovocal training. I could. That would be another word as well. I could, but that people have attitudes about that too. Oh my gosh, too many attitudes for my liking. I know, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, I've just dropped the de descriptor and just got neurovocal, which for most people has no meaning. Let's give this neurovocal a meaning. Let's, okay. let's fly so, the flag for neurovocal. Let's fly the flag. So I, I mentioned earlier that the singer of popular styles in an amplified situation, and by the way, that's why I call it microphone music or popular styles. I personally do not love the term CCM, and I've heard you talk about this too. You don't love it either for the same reasons that I don't, which is that not, not all the music is contemporary, not all the music is commercial. So it's another one of those things. Mm -hmm. So, But for me, the connecting thread is that we sing into microphones. Yes, and can I tell you that I can't remember what year it was, but I think it was around perhaps 2014 or 15 at a European conference, whether it were, was PVOC or ICVT and Ingo Tits, they mm -hmm. talked about those styles as maybe we should call them microphone styles. <gasps> Really? Amplified oh, I, okay. Now I feel so fancy right now. Mm, mm. Yes. <laughs> me, because... and Ingo, me and Ingo, we're like this. You really are? No, <laughs> I wish. Okay. Well, you don't know who I am. You no, should send I'm him a... a copy of your book and then you will I, be. I should. He's, I'm, a, I'm an Ingo Well, if he's girl. listening, Ingo, if you're listening... <laughs> Can Ingo, you, I'm a fangirl. Can you please make friends <laughs> with Meredith? Make friends. <laughs> okay. So, um, so here's, here's the thing. So here we are. We're in these situations where we cannot hear ourselves. Mm -hmm. And our training is for situations where we can hear ourselves. So our, our training teacher probably is classically trained. And so her training came from an acoustic situation, yes. acoustic reality. Yes. And then we train one-on-one -on -one in an acoustic environment and we practice at home in our shower, in our bedroom, in these acoustic environments. And then we step onto stage <laughs> and we are in an amplified environment and everything changes. Yes. All the things you have been using to control your singing are useless. And that was something that became very, very clear to me. So that was, that was part of my reality as a working singer, as I am discovering popular neuroscience, which this, so this is the nineties, popular neuroscience is starting to come into being, right? Mm -hmm. You people, regular people like me are able to get books written by neuroscientists yes. and 
and so I'm discovering this and and starting just eating it up, thinking I'm I, I did not put it together for for singing at all. I just I was just thinking this is fun. It's interesting. I am uh, a closet science nerd and kind of always have been. And so and also it's making my teaching. Then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I could start applying this to my teaching. And it's a lot more interesting. And da, 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 da. so now, OK, fast, fast forward to now, I'll just tell you how what the thinking my thinking is and, and the way that I find that it works really, really well. So our brains, our brains are predictors. So if you have ever had Alexander Technique, you have experienced your, your body predicting what your brain is telling it to do. And your brain is predicting before that. So every time you, and this, I'm just going to uh, keep this in motor activities, right? Mm-hmm. Every okay. time you are about to initiate a motor action, so a motor or open a motor memory. In my classes, I call it open the file because... Because we have these fairly complex motor memories that are for specific things that we are accustomed to doing that we have practiced over and over again. So for me, the thing that I use to demonstrate, because this is very universal, and you could try it now. Do you want to try it? Yes. Do you yes. have a pen right now? Do you have a pen or a pencil nearby? Yes, I have, I have one in my hand. You do? Okay. So use your pen to be a pretend toothbrush and brush your teeth. We you brush your teeth. Okay. Easy peasy. Right. So now you with your toothbrush, you could walk around your house and pick the socks up off the floor and pet the cat and check your texts. And you could still be brushing. I'm patting my cat. I'm patting your cat. Right. Easy peasy. Charlie doesn't like being patted while I'm brushing my teeth. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting getting virtual toothpaste on him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here you are brushing your teeth now. Okay, so. Your brain has a very strong motor memory for brushing my teeth with my right hand. Yes? Yes. Okay. Switch hands. Now try. Also of a different color, isn't it? Feels very different. Feels very different. Yes. So that, I even use holding that as, even the, the holding tooth, it. Even holding it, I'm not sure. No, see, I have my pinky right? up. My pinky is up on my right hand, and on my left hand, my pinky is not. Yeah. Because you don't have a motor memory, no. a unified motor function for mm-hmm. brushing my teeth with my left hand. Okay. Okay. So, and I, and that's, that's universal there. You have a lot of, a lot of things that you do every day. So for singing, those of us who teach singing are people come to us. If we were teaching guitar or piano, or really any other instrument, we would have a certain percentage of our studio come to us who has never touched that instrument in their life. They don't have any old habits to break. But for singing teachers, 100% of the people that come to us are people who have practiced for hundreds or thousands of hours this thing that they want us to teach. Even if they're just singing in the car, they've sung. Exactly. In the shower, they've sung. Or they've they've sung happy birthday. Everyone's sung. Exactly. So so then they want us to teach teach them how to sing. (laughs) But they already know how, how to sing. So we have two things happening here. One is we need to be cognizant of the fact that if we are teaching singers of popular styles, which I am, I need to be cognizant of the fact that they are going to be in situations where more often than not, they cannot hear themselves well or at all. And two, you already know how to do the thing that you're asking me to teach you how to do. Mm -hmm. So with those two things in mind, then we, we need to circumvent the predictive brain. 
Because as soon as you imagine you're singing, Marissa, your brain starts singing before anything else has happened in your body. Your brain, I I call it open the singing file. You have a very solid, if you think brushing your teeth with your left hand was weird, try singing differently. (laughs) Yes. That's you. It's it's virtually impossible. Yes. Because if you think you're singing, you're going to sing the way you've always sung. Yes. And if that, and if the way that you've always sung is in some way limiting or not serving your purpose, or in the, in the case of my students, a lot of the times who are gigging singers is making it so that you are experienced fatigue. So if I take a gig on Friday night, I then cannot sing on Saturday night. We can't have that, right? So because we have to be able to sing two nights in a row or three nights or four nights in a row. So if one of those things is happening, that means that your sing file is not meeting your needs. It is not serving your ends. It is not as as an artist, as a creator, as just the motor action of singing is not being as efficient as it needs to be. So what do we need to do about that? And this is where what, what I teach, which is that we need to, in, two, where two things are happening. One is we're interrupting that motor memory mm-hmm. by asking the brain to do something different. Now, uh, most voice professionals, a bag of tricks where they interrupt the motor memory and uh, they may not say it in those words. They don't know what they're doing necessarily in that neurological framework, but they are when when somebody isn't getting their head voice and someone will say, well, make a sound like a siren going down the street. That's you interrupting the motor memory, the existing motor. Right. So, 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 so most of us have that kind of thing. But then additionally, there's the level of, of concept and about singing. I mean, the, the feedback loop. So when I, if I rely on my ears to teach singing, there's a couple things getting in my way. One is that I, my predictive brain is always trying to catch up with what I just heard. And what I heard, by the way, is suppressed because when you sing, your auditory cortex is somewhat suppressed. And I'm hearing it in a way that only I hear it because the vibrations that I'm creating are being accentuated through my jawbone and through the water in the tissue of my face. And so you're, you and I are not hearing me the same way. I'm hearing it in a yes. way that is exclusive to me. Yes. So those yes. two things, the auditory cortex being suppressed. And then also once that, once that sound goes into my ear, my brain has to process it, make sense of it, and decide what to do with the next sound. Now, happily, in neuroscience, time is measured in hundredths of a second. So we have that going for it. <laughs> so things do happen very quickly in neuroscience. However. We as humans, and especially as artists, when we are singing, we also are conceptualizing as we move forward. So scientists talk about this, uh, the affective circle. So and uh, your affect, your physical affect is just about arousal and pleasure. So anything that is, you, so it's your high arousal, low arousal, your it's pleasant or it's unpleasant. That's yes. your affective yes. circle. Everything that you do beyond that is you conceptualizing. Right. Right. So you, so if somebody says, brighten your sound, Marissa, that's a concept, right? Now, if you, if your concept, if I, if I, as a voice teacher listening to teach you, right, if, if I say brighten your sound, Marissa, and you share your concept of brighten your sound, and it doesn't match what I wanted from you then I might sing 
so that your brain can make sense of that concept sure. in a, in a nonverbal way. Because you don't want to know the last five years of my vocal pedagogy classes, right? You just want, I just want you to make the sound. Yes. Hopefully. Yes. So, but that's, but when we are, when we're using listening and concept, then we're standing in between just really basic, healthy, efficient phonation. So not singing, just phonation. Mm-hmm. So healthy phonation can live in the affective circle the circle of affect, right? It does not have to be part of your conceptual system. Right. So healthy phonation is just about your physical feeling, which by the way, remember I talked about the feedback loop of the aural information, right? The feeling information doesn't go out and come back again and run through all your conceptual system. It just goes, I have an intention for a feeling. I reach for this affect that is free of judgment, that is free of um, concept. And, and I am experiencing a balanced arousal in a balanced, pleasant or unpleasant. So I'm staying in that physiological circle of affect. I'm not going into the other space. And so once I have understood that, once I've taught my body how to reach for that, it will remember. And so, and this is the thing that is so fun for me whenever I I work, especially with teachers, because teachers are so smart. I mean, when I teach my teacher classes, those are just thrilling for me because people get it so quickly. You know, it's yes. a, like my students get it, but not at, they get it at a very physical level, not at an intellectual level. So when the teachers get it intellectually and physically at the same time, it's really delightful. So anyway, um, so we, we do some a little bit of work around finding that affect, which initially really feels like you're on a tightrope and then ultimately feels like how did I ever not do this and and that allows the singer uh, in a situation where she cannot hear herself it allows her to reach for the feeling of healthy phonation and allows her to sing in that way so that she can then sing again tomorrow night the stamina that people experience when they start to sing in this way when they make the transition and it for most people it takes a, a while you know, anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. But when they start to sing in this way, they're astounded at their stamina because it's so efficient and, and it's so free of judgment. And so that's really fun. That is a really fun thing. So then when you enter that world of just looking at the physiology of it only, we're not seeking a particular tonal outcome because that's the other thing, Marissa. I, do you mind that I'm just going on and on? Like no, this, I get, this is great. I get a little I excited about this. but I like when you talk but the other thing is if you have been trained for a classical or any kind of like acoustic training you have been trained for a particular sonic outcome that's part of the deal it's not bad it's what the genre is right it's you have to there's a framework and that framework for and that's not just classical singing it's all classical art every Mm. classical art that there is operates within a framework and that defines the genre So there's a particular sonic outcome that's expected and needed in order to meet the demands of that genre. Fair enough. That's not our world. No. We do not live in that world. So we do not, there there literally is not one single musical value that you can tell me that I can say there, name you five famous singers who didn't have that and people loved them anyway. (laughs) It just didn't. 
just yes. doesn't matter, right? Yes. So we, and all these things like um, you, you mentioned belting. So belting is a, is a volume and texture, right? So we use volume, we use texture. Those are things that we do. And, and we don't have to get, we don't have to learn supported breathing in the same way that a classical person does, because we can break up a phrase in the middle of a word if we want. We don't get fired from our jobs. No. You know, that, <laughs> it really doesn't matter. So that, the other thing about when we teach popular styles, and if a teacher is understanding what the values of popular styles are, then it allows them to approach the student in a way that says, Let's discover about your voice instead of trying to m help you meet particular preset sonic outcomes, tonal outcomes, right? We get to just discover what it is about your voice and what is it about your singing that makes you what you are. And if you want to play around with copying other people's singing and seeing what words from their stylistic vocabulary feel good to you and sit with you now. And, it, and that's the other thing that's really fun. It's a now thing because in five years, you might be a totally different singer or a, yes, or a different singer at any rate. And we, ha we can then be in that space that just allows for discovery and a discovery artistically and personally, because as you were talking about earlier, the, you know, in the voice, voice, our voice is our identity. If our, <laughs> right. So if, the way that we treat our voice, the way we hear our voice, the way we interact with our voice, the way we use our voice, those things are going to reflect back in our, into the experience of our lives Absolutely. In, a, in a positive, negative or neutral way. Yes. And one of the things that you were touching upon there, you were talking about having that expectation in terms of sound when it comes to classical singing. Whereas in, uh, I will use the term CCM here just for mm -hmm. the sake of consistency mm -hmm. within our, our teaching circles, that in CCM styles, that uniqueness sells. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and a lot of the uniqueness in the individual singer comes from their little imperfections. Absolutely. You can have imperfections. People want honesty. They want an honest, authentic performance across those styles. And that's what sells. There's a very fundamental thing that I thought everybody knew and that it seems like very few voice professionals are aware of. And I'm going to say it right now. Okay. Hopefully, hopefully some people who hear this will go, oh, I knew that. And some people will go, oh, what? And that is this. When you sing classical music, actually, when you are involved in any classical art form, right, whether it's theater, dance, or, or, or perform, well, classical performing arts, right, or music, okay. you are a vehicle for the performer's intent. I mean, sorry, the composer's intent. Absolutely. You are a vehicle for the composer's intent. So you are the translator. You are not the creator. Can you bring you some of your own creativity into it? Yes, you can when you have earned it, but that's not your job. Your job is to bring the composer's intent to life. As a popular singer or a musician or any performing art, that's not the deal. No. We are the creator. So we are the ones who are, people don't care if it's perfect because we're not being compared to anyone. We no. can't even use the word perfect. Yes. You know? 
Yeah, you're so right because I know when I was in, in the midst of my performance career, I had songs that I would sing night after night after night. And were they the same every night? No, because how I felt the night before was different how, to how I was feeling the next night, either physically, I was feeling differently, emotionally, whether I'd had a stressful day, whether there was something going on, I'd had an argument with my husband. So the delivery of the song was different every performance. I could never say, yes, I, I, this is how I sing it and then replicate it night after night after night because I felt different each night. And that's how we are as human beings. Our feelings can change by the second. Yeah. I mean, our feelings or just decisions, decisions mm. to try something new. I've been singing this damn song every night for the past month. If I don't change it up, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> yeah. But if you, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's but a little dramatic, but you know, yeah, I'm assuming. absolutely be but, dramatic. But I, you know, I feel the need to bring something new to this. As a storyteller, and if you're emotionally connected to a song, it's going to be different because your story will be different according to how you're feeling in that moment in time. Yes, if you are emotionally connected to the song, but there are a lot of people that are out there. I wasn't emotionally connected to most of the stuff that I sang when I was a working singer. Mm. I was just singing. So sometimes it was just like, what would make this more fun? Or I want to try this new skill that I've been working on. Or, yeah. you know, I just, artists are expansive by their nature. So they want to expand outward. Even if it's risky. And that's, again, that's why I talk about being confident. Because taking a risk is scary and satisfying. Absolutely. Yes. And that's one of the things, you know, when I, when people, this is, and this is so interesting. One of the things that I've noticed, and I, I would love it if, if I could find a study on this, because I, I don't think there probably is one, but it's so interesting. What I see in people who are trying to adopt these new behaviors. So I ask them for these new behaviors and they, uh, they have this. So let's pretend it's a, a voice teacher. So she has a lot of skill level. She's, she's intelligent. She's experienced. She's been a singer. She's been a voice teacher. She knows what's going on. She's willing. She is doing great. She's doing exactly what I've asked her to do. She can feel it in her body. Yes, I'm doing the thing. And then meanwhile, and I do this because it's always in the background, she feels something not good. She feels scared or frustrated or annoyed with me or, right. <laughs> or something. Right. So there's a there's some kind of like negative feeling going on back there, even at the same time that she's having a positive experience and she's completely willing. And it's so interesting to me. And I kind of think my theory about this, which could be total malarkey, but what I think it is, is that when, so our brains are really good at, at giving us what we ask for, at responding to our intentions. If you, if you ask your brain to do something new, it will figure out a way in the moment. Yes. And it, yes. Right? Yes. Um, but you're very aware of the fact that it's new. Well, that's because you don't have a neural pathway for that behavior because it's brand new. So when we, or you're, or you've, you're creating this ad hoc neural pathway that, on on the fly because it's a new behavior. So I think that when these new these behaviors, especially motor behaviors, are brand new and we don't have an existing neural pathway for them, and we're we're really 
stimulating the neuroplasticity. We're really like poking at our brain, so to speak. We feel uncomfortable emotionally. We have a sense of some kind of discomfort that then we may or may not categorize. And then as people are able to predict, I know that what is this is going to feel like. I know what the outcome is going to be. Well, then that then that it's fine. feeling, that buzz in the background just goes away. Yes. Yes. So I think it's I think it's probably a little bit of self-doubt because most of us don't like it when we can't predict the outcome. We have a fear of the outcome and it's probably that little bit of self-doubt. Am I going to be able to do it? That's definitely one of the manifestations. I've seen a lot of different manifestations. Self-doubt is definitely in there. You're absolutely right. Yes. So with your training, now it's specifically for microphone singers. Do you teach it to classically trained singers and musical theater singers as well? Sure. If they want, if they want to learn, I'm happy to help them. Okay. I'm very. It can be applied to those singers too, is what I'm asking. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's about helping people find the voice that they want. Mm-hmm. And sometimes someone's been singing for a long time, and now they're, uh, for whatever reason, because they're at a certain age, or because they want to sing more frequently than classical training allows them to sing, or or just because they felt like they were roped into the pipeline, and then they. <laughs> And they never necessarily, you know, that wasn't the music of their heart. So for any number of reasons, people will come to me and say, is, is this a safe thing to do? Can I find a way to do this? And I think that, don't you? I think absolutely yes. everybody yes. gets to have a voice. Yes. And with your training, then where do you typically start with a new student? Where do I typically start? Hmm. Like but I typically start by finding out what they have in mind, what, okay. their, what their vision is for themselves. Yes. And do you have exercises that you've created as part of your training program or do you use? I do. You oh, yeah. Do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so the way that I, that I do this, so I have principles, right? These physiological, neurological principles that are pretty darn reliable. And then I have exercises that I have found over time make it possible for people to understand both intellectually and physically because we're singers. We have to know what it feels like, right? So intellectually and physically understand these principles. And then once people understand them, I say, have at it. If you find something that works better, you know, one of the luxuries of being a one-on-one private voice teacher is that we can respond in the moment to the person in front of us on that day. (laughs) So, so if the thing that I gave you isn't working and you have a better idea, go to town, give it a shot. It's not brain surgery. No one's going to die. Can we do a little bit of that? (laughs) You want want to do it? I haven't killed anyone yet, so I'm glad you haven't either. There's maybe some I might have liked to have killed. No. (laughs) So, no, tell me. Yes, let's do a little role play. Let's do do a thing. Do you want to do one? Okay. So I'm going to ask you to do the thing that I, I call in my teaching classes, I call it moving the big rock because it is the smallest and the biggest thing. When that is to shift your awareness mm-hmm. from what you are hearing to what you are feeling, okay. which is such a simple thing to say, isn't it? Yes. It's so simple to say. You can say that, yes. 
Yeah, so easy to shift your awareness. from What we have going for us is it's very difficult to pay attention to two things at once. And if you think you are, you're not, actually. You're just shifting back and forth. So if it is your intention to focus on a single thing, your brain will help you out with that job. So we're going to try to keep you there, okay? Okay. All right. So will you please just hum, just hum for me? Any old pitch, comfortable pitch. Great. So you just, the humming sound you just made was on an M like Marissa, right? Yes. So I would like you to now do that same thing on an N like Nancy. Great. So did you notice that there's a slight difference in the way those two things felt? Yes. And the, the N was slightly more unreliable and <laughs> yes, but okay. Yes. Okay. I won't okay, go so into the reason. My voice is a little unreliable at the moment because I'm, I, through lack of sleep, I'm going through a little bit of a grieving process. So yeah. yes, yes. My voice, I, I'm a little bit, um, yeah. Well, you also have, you also have stress. Uh, you also have mm. hormone receptors on your vocal folds. And cortisol is a hormone. Uh, so maybe, Marissa, we, we could pick a slightly lower pitch. Do you want to try it on a lower pitch and see if that? Yes, much better. So, yeah, that's better. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Let's stay with that then. All right. So do you know, so let's, will you do your M like Marissa and N like Nancy, please? So there's a slight difference between those two, yeah? Yes. And I'm and from the sound of it, it sounds to me like the N is slightly more present to you. It is, and it's slightly yeah. more comfortable. Slightly more comfortable. Very good. Okay, so now will you please, and if you want to close your eyes to help you with this, feel free to do that. Bring your attention to the front of your face and then hum on that N like Nancy again. Okay, can you feel that? Yeah, I'm trying to feel it less okay. in the throat, and, and, but it's, it's like okay. a sympathetic no, no, no. vibration. I will help you. Don't worry. Okay. okay, so all I want you to do is just hum on an end. That's all I'm asking. Okay. I'm asking you, with your attention on the front of your face, can you feel anything? Yes, I can now. Very good. Okay, so the thing that you're feeling, is it a, something that you can point to, or is it more a generalized feeling? No, I can actually almost feel like (laughs) a vibration here. Okay, very good. Around the nose. Okay, perfect. Great. I'm glad it was so specific for you. Mm -hmm. So now will you close your eyes again and and do that again? And this time, before you make the sound, Marissa, will you please anticipate that feeling that you just described to me? Very good. Okay, perfect. So now you notice about that sound, it's it's not a pretty sound. It's a very plain sound. Yeah, that's and, okay. And it forced you to, to really pay attention to what your body was doing and how that felt to you, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. So we're going to move this around a little bit. Okay. So here's, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. As soon as your brain hears me hitting keys on the piano, it will yes. go, oh, yay, we're singing. Yes. You know? That's so what I tell to- my students. Okay, that's why we do a lot of work without music. (laughs) Yes. So what I'd like you to do is really each time I play a pitch, you can hear the pitch in your brain, reach for that same feeling, okay, and then hum. Okay, on the end, yeah. On the end, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So take an easy breath. Know what it's going to feel like. Good. You're fine. Great. Easy breath. Anticipate the feeling. Uh, okay. And here's your pitch, and just know what it's going to feel like. Just reach for the feeling. Great. Let's do one more. Great. So now as you move through those half steps, you notice that each one feels ever so slightly different. Yes. And you, and you, but you're not creating that difference. You are allowing for that difference. Aha. And that's where we have to see. And I was having a little moment back here thinking, mm. am I doing this correctly? It feels different. Yes. There it was. I that's had the self exactly what I was. That's yes. exactly what I was yes. talking about. Because I was thinking, am I doing, I was, I was questioning whether it was correct or not because it felt different every time. It does feel we different, doesn't it? Yes. But you were allowing for those natural changes. So what you just, you, we just went up a minor third. We, the, the lowest note was a G, highest note was a B flat, which is not very far on a piano, but it's significant in a voice, as you know. Um, and so each half step, you were not creating a change. You were allowing for the change in sensation. And you notice as you're doing that, and if you want to try again, we can touch on this and do it one more time. But you notice as you're doing this that you are aware of that buzzy feeling in your face, which, yes. again, you know this. This is a component of all popular styles, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. That, that placement, right? Whatever. Yes. Whatever word yes. people use. And that you, your larynx was very relaxed, like you didn't have a sense of it being engaged because you were very competent at tricking it out of singing. You were just in that affective circle of arousal and pleasure, right? So you were right in the middle of your, like you had enough, you were in that yes. balanced place. You yes. had enough energy that you were creating the buzz, but not so much that you were working hard or trying to be loud. Exactly. I wasn't thinking yeah. about anything else other than what you asked me to think about. Which also set you free of aesthetic judgment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you can imagine that if you're, if you're using this way of, a, of approaching things, that as you get into those higher notes where s singers often struggle with aesthetic judgment, because it does sound, can sound pretty bad up there in a high chest blend, especially when they're not accustomed to it. When, when we're able to shift back to looking, but how does it feel, right? And it, it step away from this, this sonic outcome and just say, what does it feel like? It helps people get past those, you know, bridging the brakes, as they like to say in um, whatever, you know. Whatever. Whatever yes. people say. <laughs> whatever people say. So with this training. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see, uh, Marissa, I'm kind of like, I'm I'm very nerdy. I'm I'm way outside of the box here and But if and it, it works, it works. And I think this is where people need to stop being judgmental. There's more than one way to mm -hmm. achieve an end result. And if something works and and you're creating healthy, sustainable technique with your students, well, isn't that a fantastic thing? It doesn't matter that it's different to what everyone else teaches. And who has the mm -hmm. right to say that it's wrong? See, this is what I love about your podcast. You always say stuff like that. 
but it's true you, though. You like, like when people call her outside the lines. <laughs> I do love, I do love. You know? I can say that I learn something from every guest that I have on the show. Everyone teaches me something because we're all, what we're doing is valuable. All of us, what we're doing is valuable. And people are coming together with new ideas, new concepts, new training. It means that the pedagogy keeps evolving. Yes. It's so fun, isn't it? Yes. And we have in across CCM or popular music styles, we have an ever growing landscape of music styles and we have to be able to keep adapting the training to compensate for that growing landscape of music styles. And so what you're teaching, you feel that will you can adapt and for those styles, it will it will serve across a number of styles. It helps everybody. I, I say that it's for popular styles because that's my deal, right? I'm, I'm not qualified to say that I teach classical. But the classical teachers who have taken my class have, to, to the person, said that it has positively affected their classical singing as well. Well, so again, I, I would never I, put that in my copy on my page because I'm, I just, but if somebody says it, I will, yes, I will share that. Yes. Now we've got to start wrapping this up. So we're getting to the last few questions. And by the way, we're going to share your links to your book, your website, to whatever training you have coming up in the future. If you have any oh, teacher training that's coming up. We will share everything with our listening audience in the show notes. Great. So, well, my book is 75% off now because I'm starting to write the next one. <laughs> good on you. See, continually evolving. That's what we do. Ah. Yes. What mm-hmm. can we do better to ensure that we meet our students' needs as teachers? Oh, that's such a good question. That is such a good question. I I had not planned on that question, but I will tell you what just leapt into my head. Yes, please do. Which is humility, is to be humble and to be a servant. I love that. I totally agree with that. I think, yes, it's not about us. It's about our students. And we we need to listen to them and listen to what their needs are Mm -hmm. in order to best serve them. Even when they don't know what their needs are, sometimes we can help them find that. But we have to be very careful not to impose our agenda on them. What we do is we have to leave our biases at the door. Which is easy to say. Yes. (laughs) Last question. What is the greatest piece of advice you would like to give to our singing voice community? Oh my! I am not. I'm not qualified to give advice you to the boys. You so are. You you're an experienced, <laughs> nerdy, amazing teacher. So what would what would you like to share with them in terms? I of guess advice? okay. Well, I'll tell you. I, I guess I'll, I'll respond by when I read the forums. Sometimes I guess the things that that I never respond to because I just I just don't have a space in my brain for it is when people get very rigid and rule-bound. Even in classical music, when people say, this is the way something absolutely must be. I want people to remember this is art. And as teachers, we are servants to artists. We're artists ourselves. I'm not diminishing that at all. 
but yeah, being being rigid doesn't serve anyone. And so I, I just guess I wish everyone would be able to be flexible and open and interested in other art forms and look for the beauty and the differences rather than what is right and wrong. That is a brilliant answer. Thank you. That is an absolutely brilliant, beautiful answer. Thank you. And I agree with you. Definitely. I agree. Everything. I know you love all kinds of music. I do love all kinds of music. Yes. I'm I'm very open to yeah. listening to everything. Now Meredith, you have been so generous with your time. I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us. I want to thank you and good luck with everything and I'm going to thank see you. you in Chicago. So I'm not going to the states this year. I'm meant to be in Detroit for a conference, but I'm going to present virtually at that one. I would have come to Chicago otherwise, but look, the best of everything to you. And I look forward to catching up with you sometime soon in, in person and wish you all the best with all your work that you're that doing. It's fabulous and very much needed. Thank you. Thank you, Marissa. Take Thank care. you so much for having me. I feel honored to be part yes. of this great community you're creating. Thank you for Lovely. being on the show. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Voice and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it as now is an important time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up feeling empowered and ready to live your best life. If you know someone who will also be inspired by this episode, please be sure to copy and paste the link and share it with them. Or share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. I promise you, I am committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one every week. And if you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would also love to know what it is that you most enjoyed about this episode and what was your biggest takeaway. Please take care and I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of A Voice and Beyond.